UN aid agency in Gaza says it'll soon run out of money after the U.S. and other nations paused funding. It's Tuesday, January 30th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the pause in funding comes after allegations that some of the agency's staff were involved in the October 7th attack on Israel. We're going to be looking very hard at the steps that UNRWA takes to make sure that uh, this is fully and thoroughly investigated. And this hour, state officials in Texas are refusing to cooperate with a Supreme Court decision allowing the Biden administration to remove razor wire at the southern U.S. border. Also, the next presidential primary will be held in South Carolina. We'll have a closer look at the state's voter demographics. White voters, you know, more than 70 to 80 percent vote for Republicans and African-American voters around 80 to 90 percent vote for Democrats. Celtics win, cloudy, breezy in the 20s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.S. and Qatar are both hinting at progress in talks on a new prisoner exchange and pause in fighting in Gaza. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the U.S. and Israeli spy chiefs met with Qatari and Egyptian officials over the weekend in Paris. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Qatar's prime minister in Washington for an update on negotiations to get hostages out of Gaza in exchange for another pause in fighting. He says he's hopeful about the latest proposal being discussed. The proposal is a a strong one and a compelling one that, again, offers some hope that we can get back uh, to this process. But uh, Hamas will have to make its, uh, its own decision. He says Qatar and Egypt are playing a key role in the outreach to Hamas. Israel has said there are still gaps. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Details are emerging about the three U.S. soldiers killed in a drone strike in Jordan last weekend. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Grant Blankenship reports all three were Georgia natives who were serving with the Army Reserve's 718th Engineer Company based at Fort Moore. The Department of Defense says Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Brianna Moffat, and Specialist Kennedy Saunders were killed in the attack. Saunders, 24, was from Ware County, some 200 miles southeast of Fort Moore. Scott Moy is the Ware County manager. Had no idea that one of the ones that lost her life was um, one of our own. She actually graduated with my youngest daughter. Moy says he quickly pinned a proclamation to lower flags to half staff. It was a way for us recognizing our own from her home county. Moy says the flags will remain lowered, in the words of the proclamation, until the sun sets on the day of her interment. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon, Georgia. The House Homeland Security Committee is expected to approve impeachment articles today against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Republicans claim he's refused to enforce U.S. law at the southern border. Texas Republican Congressman Mike McCall says Mayorkas needs to personally pay for the border crisis. Nobody deserves it more than this man. I call him the architect of destruction and chaos. He has created this crisis and he knows better. He's smarter. But Democratic lawmakers say this is a political ploy by Republicans. Mississippi's Benny Thompson says the GOP wants an election year showdown over immigration. This is a singly focused effort uh, led by Republicans uh, who are just trying to drum up this notion that somehow uh, this is an issue. Uh, that the the Republicans can ride into November. Secretary Mayorkas did not testify in his own defense, but released a letter denying the allegations. 
This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Today is the eighth day of canceled classes for Newton Public School students. The teacher strike there is now one of the longest in Massachusetts since the 1990s. Teachers are negotiating a new contract with the city and remain at odds over school funding. Yesterday, a Newton parent filed a legal motion asking a judge to compel teachers to return to classrooms. State officials plan to turn the Roxbury Recreational Center into a new overflow shelter for migrants and families without homes. As many as 400 people could stay there through the spring. Residents and city officials say they're worried about the situation. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu points out the move will force a predominantly black neighborhood to give up an asset in order to house the families. The state says it hopes to close the shelter by this summer. Senator Elizabeth Warren says Steward Healthcare's explanation for its financial woes, quote, do not add up. She claims the company has put profits over patients. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports Warren's comments come as the state continues talks with Steward over the fate of its nine Massachusetts hospitals. Warren says she's organizing a briefing with other members of the state's congressional delegation to press Stewart for answers about its financial problems. Stewart says it serves a vulnerable patient population in Massachusetts and is working to continue providing uninterrupted care. Stewart has acknowledged that financial difficulties are facing its Massachusetts hospitals, which serve tens of thousands of patients and employ more than 14,000 people. The company has blamed lower reimbursement rates for publicly insured patients. State officials have said they're in talks to protect health care and preserve jobs. A plan to deal with Stewart's Massachusetts hospitals could come this week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Cambridge City Councilors are officially calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. The newly adopted resolution calls for an end to violence by both Hamas and the Israeli military. It also calls for the release of all hostages. The vote last night follows a similar decision in Somerville last week. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. The Celtics came out on top during a close game against New Orleans last night. They beat the Pelicans by six points. Final score was 118 to 112. The Seas now turn their attention to the Indiana Pacers. They'll host at the Garden tonight at 7:30. Mostly cloudy and cold today. Temperatures will fall this morning to highs today in the upper 20s, and a light breeze will make it feel even cooler. Tonight, the clouds and breeze stick around with a low near 20 degrees. Tomorrow, cloudy to start, but the sun will begin shining through as the day goes on. It'll be warmer, too, with highs reaching the upper 30s. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Joyce Foundation. Committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org and the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Having stopped financial aid to a refugee agency for Palestinians, the United States is setting conditions for restoring it. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke at a press conference yesterday. We're going to be looking very hard at the steps that UNRWA takes to make sure that uh, this is fully and thoroughly investigated, that there's clear accountability, 
and that is necessary, measures are put in place so that this doesn't happen again. UNRWA is the acronym for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. It is the main provider of aid to displaced Palestinians who are inside Gaza and in the middle of a war. The United States and other nations suspended aid after Israel accused some employees of playing roles in the October 7th attacks on Israel. Norway has not changed its stance, and its foreign minister joins us now. Espen Bart Ida is in Norway. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, and good morning to everyone in America. Why not stop the payments? Because we are, let me first say that we are exactly as shocked, shocked and appalled by the accusations of some UNRWA staff uh, potentially having participated in the terrorist attack of 7th of October. That's unacceptable and we demand full transparency. But cutting funds now is uh, really the wrong moment because uh, we're talking about millions of people in extreme humanitarian distress. Uh, remember that it's not only the, the bombing and shelling and fighting that kills people, it's actually also now lack of food, lack of clean water, lack of basic medical facilities. And many of those are provided to the extent they are provided at all through UNRWA. So I think what we should abstain from is anything that looks like we're giving a collective punishment against all the Palestinian people because the, of the misdeeds and wrongdoings of some. Are, are you arguing then that this agency's thousands of employees do useful work, valuable work, even if some of them were involved in terrorism? So there's 30,000 employees in UNRWA, uh, in several countries, wherever there are Palestinian refugees. 13,000 of those are in Gaza. And the vast majority of these people are performing extremely important uh, life-saving and humanitarian efforts, uh, many of them at the risk of their life, including those more than 150 of these employees who have been killed in the fighting since 7 October. But, 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 but it seems that uh, it, uh, there are serious and credible accusations that um, a few of them, maybe a dozen, have been involved in totally unacceptable uh, activities, which is to contribute to what happened on the 7 October. That uh, cannot be accepted. There should be zero tolerance. But, but the reaction should be against those individuals and also to look into how that could happen, not to take away all the funding for a crucially important um, uh, humanitarian and relief agency, which we really need um, these days. And yeah. I, I really don't want to be part of punishing the Palestinian people for what uh, some people have done wrong, even if that was a very big wrong. I guess we should note that Israel has made other complaints over the years about UNRWA, accusing the agency's schools in Gaza of teaching anti-Semitism, for example, or that the staff are too close to Hamas. Do you think there is a wider problem that needs to be investigated? Well, these are familiar accusations and they have actually been investigated uh, several times and uh, both in UNRWA and uh, we as uh, donors and Norway is like the US and EU and uh, a large donor. We have repeatedly been uh, working on, for instance, looking into curricula in schools and, and, and these issues to ensure that uh, we are not contributing to that. So this is something I feel is taken seriously by the UNRWA leadership and should be taken seriously, obviously. Uh, but, but we have to remember that uh, UNRWA is supporting millions of people, people in Gaza right now who are in extreme distress, but they're also in the West Bank, in Jordan and Lebanon and even Syria and Iraq. And they're assisting people who had no intention of becoming refugees, but they were forced to become refugees by 
the absence of a solution to the Israel-Palestine problem. And I think it's the wrong moment for the international community to punish them collectively over the wrongdoings of some. And having said that, we need also to have full transparency and full investigation of what happened. We've got about 15 seconds here. Have you called your American counterparts and said, look, you're overreacting here? Well, we are talking through all channels to everyone about this because we 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 think that we agree uh, with the Americans and many fellow donors that this has to be investigated into the bottom. But we are worried about the signal that it leads to cutting uh, funding. So so that's right. something we we know about each other's view and es- we will continue to discuss. Espen Bart Ida is the foreign minister of Norway. Foreign minister, thanks so much. Thank you very much. The Biden administration has vowed to respond to Sunday's deadly drone attack on U.S. military members. Here's Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking yesterday. We will respond decisively to any aggression. And we will hold responsible the people who attacked our troops. We'll do so at a time and a place of our choosing. The attack that's been blamed on Iran-backed militants killed three service members and injured dozens more. Republican Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida joins us now. He has said that Quote, Iran does not believe the Biden administration will hit back in a way that they'll care about. Congressman, so how does the U.S. respond then in a way that Iran would care about? Yeah, hi, well, thanks and g- good to be with you. And, and our prayers uh, certainly go out for the, for the families of the fallen today. I, I hope the administration uh, appreciates and realizes that deterrence has failed. Uh, it's Iran policy uh, is failing uh, with now 160 attacks on our service members uh, since just October. That was on top of another 80 uh, since President Biden has come into office. And Iran is flush with cash uh, because of the administration's attempts to enter into the Iran deal with uh, increases in its foreign currency reserves from $4 so, billion so Congressman, now to 70 What uh, should they? So I, I think yeah. my point to set mm-hmm. the stage is – Hitting back on uh, Iran's proxies in the regions has not worked and will not work uh, because Iran will trade proxy casualties for American casualties all day long, uh, and that's a good deal for them. So uh, three things that I would uh, like to see. One, hit the actual IRGC. That does not have to be in Iran proper. Uh, For example, uh, IRGC head Soleimani's uh, replacement, we know, is moving around Syria, Iraq, Yemen, coordinating these attacks. Number two, dry up the cash and actually enforce the sanctions. Uh, and then number three, uh, this is a broader term issue, but you know, we, we've had a series of uprisings inside of Iran, the most recent being uh, schoolgirls that don't want to wear headscarves, the hijab. Let's support the Iranian people uh, as they push back on a regime that's brutally repressing them. So, but I think in the very near term, uh, whether it's oil refineries, uh, or Iranian naval assets, mm-hmm. as Ronald Reagan hit, or uh, actual uh, Iranian operatives across the Middle East, as tr- President Trump did, there are ways to make Iran itself feel the pain. So, and sometimes, okay. just to use a basic analogy, right. sometimes you have to punch the bully in the mouth to kind of but okay. peace on the schoolyard. Considering, I mean, you were a Green Beret, you served in combat in the Middle East. Considering what's going on right. in Gaza right now, what are the chances that a more powerful U.S. response here sparks something even bigger, maybe even something worse? Well, I look, I think the opposite is, 
has shown to be true in the sense that the administration's attempts to not escalate, to de-escalate, which you hear in every administration official that speaks about this, has actually invited escalation. Iran, uh, its terrorist proxies and others, interpret that as an opportunity to do more, that the United States is not going to hit back in a forceful way. And, and as you mentioned, as a Green Beret that served all over that region, in that part of the world, uh, they respect strength and they understand consequences. And as long as they believe there's not going to be serious consequences, then they're going to push further. So I think the administration has to reverse course and hit back in a way that Iran cares about. All right. That's uh, Republican Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida. Congressman, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. Thank you. Some business leaders want their employees to get back to the office. Among them, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon. There are huge weaknesses to the Zoom world. So it's hard to inculcate culture and character and all those things when you have the Zoom world. You can include billionaire businessman Michael Bloomberg, too. We are paying our employees for five days a week of work. Now, if you think that those can be done at home, I don't know. All right, so has remote work really been tragic for big companies' bottom lines? We asked an expert. My name is Mark Ma, and uh, I'm an associate professor of business administration at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm listening closely there. It sounds like he's maybe on a Zoom call. Anyway, Ma's research (laughs) indicates that requiring employees to go back to the office has not been helping big companies make more money. All right, so why do it then? The managers are trying to use return to office mandates as a way to blame uh, employees as a scapegoat for the per stock market performance of the firm. As for which business leaders are more likely to issue such mandates, Ma says. We found that return to office mandates are more common among male and more powerful CEOs. And this is, in some cases, a power play. The managers are trying to grab power back from the employees in this employer-employee relationship by asking them back to the office. Now, Mr. Ma works a hybrid schedule himself. Sometimes he goes into the office to teach. Other times he works at home. (laughs) I like it because I have a four-year-old son. And so avoiding spending one hour commuting, that will give me a lot of more time to spend with my son. All right, what better way to make working from home feel less like work? This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning that a Republican-led House committee is expected to approve articles of impeachment today against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Also, an elections board in Illinois is scheduled to consider whether to keep former President Donald Trump on the state's primary ballot. And in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, two former South Carolina state senators will help preview the upcoming primaries there, where the electorate is often split along racial lines. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. 
and the ICA with Tammy Gwen's nature and history-inspired paintings in a show the Globe calls stunningly successful. Closes soon. ICABoston.org. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. If we contribute DNA samples for a study, should the scientists share their results with us? Changing the relationship between researchers and the people who participate in their studies on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Mostly cloudy today. Highs will be in the upper 20s. Still overcast tonight. Temperatures will fall to the low 20s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow will have a a warm-up to highs in the upper 30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. We have a glimpse this morning of life inside Southeast Asia's Golden Triangle. That's the name for a region that produces a lot of the world's opium, the raw material for heroin, among other things. The Golden Triangle covers parts of several nations, and the most remote part of all is in the far reaches of Myanmar. The mountains there include an area that is effectively an independent nation of its own, which reporter Patrick Wynn has been trying to understand. What is it like to drive in there and move around? What do you see? You're not going to be driving in there. Usually people will go in on dirt footpaths and extremely, I would say, almost violently sculpted terrain. So we're talking about mountain ranges that are really, really severe, in parts as severe as, say, the Rockies. And it's a place where the soil is quite bitter, So it's not very good for growing vegetables, but it just so happens that bitter soil is great for growing the opium poppy. This region is so remote that during years of reporting across the whole area, Patrick Wynn has never been able to get in. But he was able to gather information about the region and its history. And he's written a book about it called Narcotopia. He profiles the Wa people, one of Myanmar's many indigenous minorities. The Wa have managed to build their own unrecognized state on the income from narcotics such as heroin and methamphetamines. It really is a world unto its own. It has its own army with more troops than Sweden. It has high-tech weapons. They collect taxes. They even issue their own driver's licenses. Hmm. You won't find it on any globe. You won't find it on any map, but it absolutely functions like a sovereign nation state. 
Are they effectively independent from Myanmar's government? Not just effectively, they are almost totally independent from Myanmar's government. If a platoon of Myanmar soldiers were to enter, they could be arrested or shot. Everybody knows that you don't go into this area without an invitation. Now, as isolated as they are, I'm just looking at a map and seeing that this corner of Myanmar is next to Thailand, which is a U.S. ally, next to Laos, which was of great interest to the United States during the Vietnam War period, next to China, which is of great interest to the United States now. Is there a history of the United States in this otherwise very isolated region? <laughs> very much so. And the original U.S. entity that was interested in this place was the CIA. What the CIA did manage to do is to use this area as a launching pad for covert missions into communist China to steal documents, to tap phone lines, in one story I uncovered, to blow up a bridge, to do anything they could to gather intelligence and pull information out of communist China, which was very, very difficult to access at that time. Later on, other American agencies, namely the DEA, became interested in the area as well because it was churning out so much narcotics and so much of it was going to the United States. Okay, so the DEA is not a fan of the WA or of that area anyway or of their drug activity, but sounds like the CIA had quite a relationship going. What was in it for the WA to work with the United States in these covert operations decades ago? Growing opium and selling opium is a capitalist endeavor. At the time, the Communist Party was dead set against opium. So if China were to expand into this area, which was a very genuine threat, it would end the opium business and that would have affected these Wa warlords. How effective is the DEA, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, trying to cut back on the drug traffic from this area? The DEA has utterly failed at one point the DEA actually wanted to work with the WA to cut this deal. The U.S. would go in and provide education, schools, hospitals, basically to modernize the WA people. And in return, the WA would wind down their drug production. But it didn't work out, in part because the CIA did not want it to work out. These different wings of the U.S. government don't always get along. And at that point in time, this is the mid-1990s, the CIA and the DEA wanted very different things from them. As you tell this story, it makes me think of somewhat more recent history in Afghanistan, where there also has been immense opium production and mixed views in the United States government about how to approach the people who were doing it, because you don't like the opium production necessarily, but you may want other things out of the people who are making it. Yeah, I'll tell you, Steve, what a former CIA station chief told me. He said, we recruit bad guys to get intelligence on even bigger bad guys. What the CIA will always do, if it can use anyone to gather intelligence on a rival, Vladimir Putin, Hezbollah, whoever, the Chinese Communist Party, they'll work with that person to achieve a larger goal, which is American supremacy. You have a line at the beginning of this book that makes me think, because you point out there are different reputations for different groups of people. The Amish make furniture and the Wa cook meth, um, which, I mean, that's a reputation, but it's also a stereotype. Are there things that you were able to learn that added some complexity to this picture of these remote people? You know, I'm from Appalachian stock myself. I know the Wa people are also mountain people. I just thought, you know, can they really be as bad as everyone says? 
In fact, no. I mean, they have to maintain this, you know, uh, pseudo nation state with all of these forces bearing down on them. They have to operate at a really sophisticated level. And what I tried to to show people in this book is how it is affected by empires such as the American empire. How did you come to label them underdogs, the WA, these people who are connected with the drug trade in this way? The WA people have been targeted by the British Empire, Chinese dynasties, uh, the CIA, the DEA. If that doesn't make you an underdog, I'm really not sure what does. I'm not saying that their government is perfect. Far from it. Some really bad things happen in their territory. What I tried to do is treat them like any other government, a government that is run by some big dreamers and some extremely cruel people with most people just kind of somewhere in between. The book is Narcotopia, and the author is Patrick Wynn, who is also the Southeast Asia correspondent for the world. Thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. You get to travel to far corners of the world just by listening to NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition. People with sickle cell disease are thrilled about newly approved gene therapies for the inherited blood disorder, but the cost has them wondering if they'll ever get treatment. It's 729. WBUR supporters include ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together. Supporting NENSA's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Members of Congress are offering different opinions on what the U.S. response should be to a deadly weekend drone strike in Jordan. It left three U.S. troops dead and more than 30 others wounded. A group backed by Iran claims responsibility for the attack. NPR's Michael Levitt has more. A written statement from Senator Lindsey Graham says, Hit Iran now. Hit them hard. That echoes other Republican lawmakers who have called for a forceful strike on Iranian targets and leadership. Democrats, on the other hand, are calling for a more measured approach. Senate Armed Services Committee member Jack Reed says a strike on the Iranian-supported militia is needed, but he suggests a more calibrated message to Tehran. They have to consider putting more pressure on Iran and somehow disrupting through economic means their oil trade. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says that the president is weighing his options, but does not want to spark a wider conflict. Michael Levitt, NPR News, Washington. The Pentagon says the three American service members killed in Jordan were Army reservists based at Fort Moore, Georgia. A House committee is expected to vote today on articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Republicans on the panel accused him of willfully refusing to enforce immigration laws. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
An attorney representing a group of voters trying to keep former President Donald Trump off the state ballot plans an appeal that follows a decision by a state justice yesterday to rule against the voters' petition. More now from WBUR's Anthony Brooks. The voters had petitioned the state ballot law commission claiming Trump violated the Constitution when he allowed the January 26th insurrection to happen. The commission said it lacked jurisdiction over the matter, and Supreme Judicial Court Justice Frank Gaziano agreed. But attorney Shannon Liss-Reardon, who represents the voters, says Gaziano got it wrong and is appealing to the full court. The only courts that have actually addressed this issue on the merits have found that Donald Trump is ineligible for the presidency under the 14th Amendment because because he engaged in an insurrection. The U.S. Supreme Court will hear a challenge of a Colorado ruling to keep Trump off the ballot there, which could resolve the question in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and State Attorney General Andrea Campbell say Massachusetts must do away with third-party electricity suppliers. In a Boston Globe opinion column, the two say such companies consistently overcharge residents when compared to utilities or municipal energy programs. They say low-income and residents of color are targeted with aggressive marketing and misleading initial rates. A team with the International Fund for Animal Welfare say a right whale found dead in the waters off Martha's Vineyard was entangled. The juvenile whale was discovered washed ashore yesterday. The group is now investigating the cause of death, which remains unknown. The North Atlantic right whale is critically endangered. There are only an estimated 350 left in the wild. Experts say entanglements and boat collisions are a leading cause of death for the whales. It's seven. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go. The Celtics came out on top during a close game against New Orleans last night. They beat the Pelicans by six points. Final score was 118 to 112. The Seas now turn their attention to the Indiana Pacers. They'll host at the Garden tonight at 730. High temperatures only in the upper 20s today. It'll be mostly cloudy. Low 20s tonight and skies remain overcast. Tomorrow, partly sunny with highs back in the upper 30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Enemy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Former South Carolina State Senators Vincent Shaheen and Joel Lurie host a podcast about politics and whiskey. It's called Bourbon in the Back Room. What bourbon exactly gets poured in the back room? <laughs> Lots of different types. Is there a brand particular? Everything from uh, Old Granddad to Wild Turkey to uh, Knob Creek. I'm just pulling some of it out right now. Maker's Mark is one of our favorites. This was a morning interview, by the way. We called them up because the next presidential primary will be held in their state. 
So, Senator Shaheen, let's start with you. I mean, how would you describe the uh, state electorate in South Carolina? What's it look like? Conservative. Uh, we've had a lot of transplants to the state. They may have been not conservative when they left their northeastern state or the midwestern state, but when they arrive here, they become uh, conservative. We also have a large African-American population, maybe almost a third of the state that tends to vote Democratic. So we have, you know, a electorate that votes for Republicans pretty overwhelmingly with a strong uh, Democratic vote that's in the minority. And unfortunately, the vote is is very racial. Um, white voters, you know, more than 70 to 80 percent vote for Republicans and African-American voters around 80 to 90 percent vote for Democrats. You both are Democrats, uh, and the Democratic National Committee last year voted to shake up the primary schedule, put South Carolina first. Uh, Senator Lurie, what does this new role mean for Democrats in the state? Well, I mean, this year, I don't think, quite honestly, it means a whole heck of a lot because our nomination is a foregone conclusion, and, and President Biden, you know, will be our nominee. But in future years where there's a contested primary, it makes South Carolina um, the place to be. I mean, if you go back and look, over time, the person who wins the South Carolina primary, even before we became first in the nation, is usually the one that goes on to win the Democratic nomination. I think an important impact on the nation of having South Carolina as a early primary state, especially in the Democratic primary, is that Democratic primary voters in South Carolina tend to be moderates to conservatives compared to what we see in some of our other states. Thus, Joe Biden um, did really well here. He was seen as the moderate choice in the last primary. And I think moving the South Carolina primary up uh, to even more prominent role will help kind of moderate the party. So you both mentioned 2020. That's when uh, Joe Biden really needed South Carolina and the state's voters definitely delivered. Um, how do you think opinions about the president have changed in South Carolina the past four years, if at all? Senator Shaheen, let's start with you on that. I think South Carolina Democrats, at least, still view Joe Biden very favorably. Uh, he had long ties to the state. So I think he's still well-loved. I think the perhaps the only thing that has changed uh, is what happens with any incumbent president, which is the excitement from the first race uh, has to be regenerated. And I think that's the challenge for the president here over the next almost a year, nine months, is to, to re-energize voters, not just in South Carolina, but across the country. All right. So Donald Trump's uh, got by Iowa with a win, got by New Hampshire with a win. And he is clearly dissatisfied with uh, Nikki Haley, your former governor in South Carolina, that uh, she has decided to stay in the race. South Carolina, when that ticket comes up, do you think South Carolina will turn out for Nikki Haley, uh, Senator Shaheen? South Carolina is Trump country and Trump will win South Carolina. South Carolina for the last, wow, over a decade has picked the more extreme candidate in the Republican primary. And I think it's safe to assume that that Donald Trump will do extremely well here. We've seen uh, almost all of the elected officials at a high level in the Republican Party endorse Donald Trump. I think that's for two reasons. One, they're afraid of Donald Trump and think he's going to win. And the other reason is they really don't like Nikki Haley anyway. So it's easy to do it. Uh, but I think I think they think he's going to win and I think he will win in the primary. Senator Lurie? One thing about uh, Governor Haley, though, I mean, she is a very talented and tactical politician. And and I don't know that that's a, a criticism or I don't know that that's praise. That's just who she is. Everything she does, she th there's a purpose behind it. Did you both work with her when you were state senators? 
Yes. Uh, well, yes, we did. <laughs> De depends on what your definition is, work with her. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I, I realized it when I said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but I will tell you, I mean, in all fairness, um, we, we, we worked with her. I mean, Nikki Haley was one that liked to come in and criticize the legislature. For example, her first year in office, she gave out report cards. I think I was one of the Fs. <laughs> and I remember going to the podium and bragging about how this is the first time that I get an F that my mother will be proud of me. Okay. Oh, no. um, <laughs> okay. But, but you know, she liked to beat up on the legislature and, and that was sort of how she positioned herself. Um, did she get a lot done? Vincent, you know, you'd have to answer that question. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, they were divisive years. I think that's part of why most of the elected officials in the state are not supporting Haley. Of course, we ran against each other for governor in 2010 in a very close race. And then she was she was very much in a kind of a defensive posture for much of her, her governor's years. So it was a they were a divisive years, I think is the best way to say it. So considering what you two just mentioned, why would she stay in the race and possibly get embarrassed in her home state? Well, we felt like Tim Scott was running for vice president, and we felt like Nikki Haley was running for 2028. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's why she's staying in, is to position herself for the future. I don't know. All right. So given then Republican dominance in uh, South Carolina, large majorities in the House, so what must Democrats do to gain some, to regain some relevance in South Carolina? Well, that, that's going to take a, a change of the national brand, frankly. Um, the national brand is not popular in South Carolina. It's seen as out of touch um, with the thoughts and the values of the state. And it's very, very hard on the local level or on the state level to change that. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think we tend to be viewed a lot by what's happening at the national level. And um, I think some of the, the far left in our party make things a lot worse for Democrats in South Carolina. I mean, when years ago, when there was this uh, effort and this, this, this movement around to defund the police, we were like, oh, God, that's just terrible. I mean, that's the worst thing you can say in a state like South, really in most states, because, you know, um, it just doesn't sit well with people that want law and order. Um, so once we improve ourselves on a national level, I think the same will happen here. That's former South Carolina State Senators Vincent Shaheen and Joe Lurie. They're hosts of Bourbon in the Back Room, a podcast about South Carolina politics. Senators, thanks uh, for your time. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks, A. If, if you ever make it over South Carolina, we'd love to drink a little uh, whatever you might like. <laughs> Pour me a glass. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, we'll look at the factors U.S. officials are weighing as they decide if and when to respond to a strike on a base in Jordan that killed three American soldiers. At risk is a wider war in the Middle East. Mostly overcast today in the upper 20s, still cloudy tonight and in the low 20s, partly sunny tomorrow and in the upper 30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. 
Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org summer. A wholesale distribution company in Woburn plans to close its facility. Ascendant will cut 82 jobs with the closure. The company tells the Boston Business Journal layoffs will start in March and go through July. The company hasn't said why it's closing its Woburn location. Work will soon commence on a 15-year plan to upgrade Amtrak's Northeast Corridor. The improvements include renovated bridges, faster trains, and more daily trips. Amit Bose is the Federal Railroad Administrator. He says the improvements will be ongoing. These projects do take time to complete, and we're also going to be doing these projects on an active uh, railroad here Uh, because we don't want to stop that service. The work is funded by the 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. A new venue and restaurant is coming to Burlington. Goodnight Johnny's Music Bar opens tonight. The restaurant will focus on traditional American comfort food and offer music on the weekends. The owners say they opened the restaurant because there's nothing like it in the area. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Deloitte, advancing the future takes more than a business angle or a technology angle. It takes both. Learn more at deloitte.com us slash engineering advantage. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. There's new hope for the estimated 100,000 Americans who have sickle cell disease. This is an inherited blood cell disorder, and it can cause debilitating pain, even strokes. The Food and Drug Administration approved breakthrough gene-editing therapies, although they cost millions of dollars. Colorado Public Radio's Elaine Tassie reports. Like most people with sickle cell disease, Mia Hilton is black. She's a 20-year-old esthetician in Denver, vivacious in long lashes, making jokes, and very comfortable with her doctor, hematologist Chris McKinney, with Children's Hospital Colorado. Lay down so I can feel your belly. Hilton's sickle cell disease sometimes causes disabling leg pain. She's been hospitalized for a week at a time, and when she's given IV medication for the pain, the drugs sedate her to the point that she can't drive. Have you heard about the recently approved gene therapies for patients with sickle cell disease? So I've heard a little bit about it, but not too, too much. Not too much, but yeah. For the last 30 years, Dr. McKinney has not been able to offer patients like Hilton any new treatments until now. It's an exciting time (laughs) for sickle cell, and this has radically changed our conversations that we have with patients. Changed because in clinical trials, the new gene therapies have been very effective at stopping pain. Hilton sounds intrigued. I would be 
pretty much down to do it. Yeah. Because I feel like in the long run, it could really help because having sickle cell, it can really slow you down. Dr. McKinney tells Hilton there are significant side effects. Side effects of chemotherapy include hair loss. Mm -hmm. It can also result in infertility. Personally, I don't want kids anyway, so that is a free form of birth control. I already have like 40 wigs in my closet, so it wouldn't be too different. Like, it would just be like, oh, new wig, oh, pink wig, red wig, you know? The new therapies are also very expensive. One is priced at $2 million, the other $3 million. The companies that make them say their price reflects the clinical and economic value of a patient's life and the one-time transformative therapy. Insurance companies will probably pay for them, says Dr. David Rind with the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. It's a nonprofit that evaluates the cost-effectiveness of medications. It would be surprising and really inappropriate not to be covering these therapies, or at least the cheaper of the two therapies. A reason, Rin says, is because of sickle cell's unique historical legacy. The reason that there is sickle cell in the United States in substantial numbers is because we brought Africans over as slaves. This is a population obligation in the United States to get this right. As her doctor prepares to start offering the therapies, Mia is still trying to decide if it's right for her. But she praises the availability of new treatments for people suffering with the disease. They don't have to worry about sickle cell reactions anymore because there's more medicines on the market. And I feel like it's making it more fair. For NPR News, I'm Elaine Tassie in Denver. This is NPR News. It's a Tuesday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.20 here on Morning Edition, we'll hear from some of the rabbis who've been traveling across Israel to counsel and provide comfort to the deeply traumatized victims of the October 7th Hamas attacks. It's 7.49. You follow the news every day on WBUR. But how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across digital trash. Five letters south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. U.S. officials say they're still weighing a response to a drone strike that killed three American soldiers at a base in Jordan. State officials in Texas are not cooperating with a Supreme Court decision that allows federal officials to remove razor wire along the southern border. And classes at Newton Public Schools are canceled for an eighth day in what is now one of the longest teacher strikes in the state since the 1990s. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu.
Upper 20s and mostly cloudy today, overcast and low 20s tonight, upper 30s and a mix of sun and clouds tomorrow. It's 31 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Enemy Martinez. Russia has launched nearly 400 missiles into Ukraine in just the last month. Their impact is at once terrible and random. Now, this is the story of one such attack and how it changed the life of one young woman. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny reports from the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. Seeing the outside of the Kharkiv Palace, a five-star hotel in downtown Kharkiv, is pretty shocking. There's a three-story hole in the side of the building. But inside, it's even more dramatic. On the 10th floor, where the Russian missile hit on December 30th, the exterior walls are gone. The wind whips across the piles of broken glass and rubble. Anton Shevchenko, the hotel's head of security, leads us through the hotel. The lobby is an atrium, and from the 10th floor where we are, you can lean over the railing. It's covered in large chunks of concrete. The chandelier crashed and mangled atop the white grand piano in the center. Unlike most missile attacks, Russia claimed responsibility for hitting this hotel. No one died here, remarkably, but there were injuries. It's hard to have a memory. I have just like two images. Svetlana Dolbysheva was among them. She's Ukrainian, studying art in London. And she was home for the holiday break, working for a foreign TV crew, doing a story in Kharkiv. She'd worked along the front lines in far more dangerous places than this luxury hotel. We were supposed to meet for supper all together uh, downstairs in the lobby. She was hungry, so she went down to the lobby early. I just sat in a chair near the white piano. She was scrolling through TikTok, reading poems by Ukrainian authors from the 1960s. All of them, it fulfilled with this love and courage. You, you might die early, but at least you lived fully, something like that. And then a missile hit the hotel tearing through the 10th, 9th, and 8th floors. I just remember one glimpse, like a glimpse image of me looking up and observing how the atrium collapses and the, everything's falling. The next image she remembers, she's down on the floor, crawling. Maybe I thought that that's it, that, that it's heat and I'm crawling and it's fine. <laughs> but I wasn't expecting it's going to be a second strike. Just four seconds later, a second missile hit a nearby building. And all that loosened concrete from the first missile, the impact of the second sent it raining down 11 floors. Being in an atrium at this point of view wasn't the best, the best place to be. A two-foot chunk of concrete landed on Svetlana's back. A moment of the rock hit my back, I got scared. Her head was bleeding, her hands and body too. But she doesn't remember pain then. She got out from under the concrete. I stood up and started to run. As she ran, she turned on her phone camera to film. The footage she shot is shaky. There's dust and debris everywhere. Her breathing gets more and more labored as she searches for the shelter underneath the hotel. She finally finds the entrance, but it's blocked. The door won't open. 
In the video, you can see Svetlana's body lean against the wall and slump to the ground. And then the video cuts out. Eventually, employees from the hotel also heading down to the shelter found Svetlana. She couldn't walk. Her injuries, broken ribs and vertebrae, a collapsed lung, head trauma, and a concussion had caught up to her. So they carried her. Rescue workers got her to an ambulance and finally to the hospital, first in Kharkiv and later to Kiev. Your stitches came out today. Yeah, do you want to see? Yeah, let me see. It looks, uh, with stitches, it looked prettier. There was some, you know, a pattern. Now it just like this uh, dried skin. Mm -hmm. I visited her in the hospital 10 days after the attack. She'd just recently begun to walk ever so slowly. I have strength for three, five minutes, and then I'm like, oh my God. From her hospital bed, she's been processing the attack by Googling the details of the missile that hit her. (laughs) The particular missile, quite expensive. Roughly $1 million. Svetlana also calculated that it weighed about seven times more than her. Like it's a useless and absolutely irrational way to like measure uh, my life versus uh, the missile. All this while she's worried about spring semester. She wrote her professors an email explaining she'd been injured in a Russian missile attack and she'd have to miss some class. And she's been grappling with how to convey what happened to her foreign friends or classmates back in London, who will ask, how is your holiday? How to tell them, she wonders. And more importantly, how to make them care. I was taking a shower, and I saw that how I flooded the whole area. And I thought, like, oh, this is my life. I will show them that. She took a picture and drafted an Instagram post. I just wrote that showering is difficult and messy. Uh, with the hashtag Russia is a terrorist state. So there was just, I can show you. There are several images in the post. She says each photo has a point, a medical chair to show something isn't right, followed by one where she's posing in a towel. Sexy picture, just to, uh, to melt the eyes, then my wounds, uh, just to scare people. She swipes to the last photo. A picture of her smiling, holding a stuffed animal. Yeah. What's that one for? I want to give them also hope. <laughs> so give them a cute stuffed animal at the end? At the end, yeah. That I'm fine. That they will not be too terrified. Yeah. After nearly two weeks, Svetlana was released from the hospital. She's doing physical therapy and tells me her bones are finally beginning to heal. She plans to return to university next month. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News, Kyiv. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep.
Mostly cloudy today. Temperatures will only be in the upper 20s. Still overcast tonight. It'll fall to the low 20s. A warm-up to the upper 30s. Tomorrow we'll have a mix of sun and clouds. The warm-up continues on Thursday to the low 40s. It'll be mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers in the late afternoon. It's 31 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israeli officials say their undercover forces have stormed a West Bank hospital and killed three militants. It's Tuesday, January 30th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, French farmers protesting inflation and competition from the EU have blocked roads in and out of Paris in what they're describing as a siege. Also this hour. One of the first things that trauma creates is the loss of language. You have no language for what your eyes witnessed. Rabbis in Israel are struggling to help victims of the October 7th Hamas attacks. Plus, Texas officials are refusing to remove razor wire along the southern U.S. border despite a Supreme Court ruling to do so. I would say to President Biden, you say you want to secure the border, you can prove it by getting out of our way here. You don't need to be here. Celtics win, cloudy, breezy in the 20s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Israeli forces raided a major hospital in the West Bank city of Jenin today. Three people were killed. NPR's Hadil Al-Shalchi reports from Tel Aviv. This is the latest Israeli incursion in the West Bank. Israeli forces said that one of the people killed in the raid on Jenin's Ibn Sina hospital was a Hamas militant planning an imminent attack. The hospital's head of surgery, Dr. Taufiq Shobeki, said that the man was a patient, paralyzed, and in a wheelchair. The hospital also says their CCTV footage shows armed Israeli gunmen dressed as hospital staff and as Arab civilians. Shobeki said that hospitals should be a red line. There should be some actions to stop the invasion and the surrounding of hospitals during any IDF operation. The UN says that over 360 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces or settlers in the West Bank since October 7th, and that six Israelis have also been killed. Hadil Al-Shalchi, NPR News. Tel Aviv. In the U.S., House Republicans are moving ahead with their effort to try to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. As NPR's Eric McDaniel reports, GOP lawmakers say they're frustrated with the Biden administration's response to record numbers of migrant encounters at the southern U.S. border. Secretary Mayorkas responded with a statement addressing Republicans' impeachment claims. He says that only Congress can fix the problems with the system and that they last passed reform legislation in 1996. There are more than a million cases in the immigration court backlog, and they often languish for an average of more than 1,300 days of processing. But Mayorkas also claims the Biden administration has dramatically increased deportations and repatriation flights compared to prior administrations. He also highlighted his own past as a Cuban immigrant and former 
former federal prosecutor. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, Washington. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Florida state lawmakers are seeking four proposed amendments to the U.S. Constitution. These amendments would impose congressional term limits, require a balanced federal budget, give the president line-item veto power, and prevent Congress from exempting itself from new laws. From member station WFSU, Regan McCarthy has more. DeSantis, who recently dropped his bid for the Republican presidential nomination, says some of the proposals have been approved by states in the past. He's trying to reignite the efforts. We're in a great spot because people look to us for leadership on a lot of these issues. DeSantis says he plans to reach out to other states to move the issues forward. Amendments proposed through joint resolution must be ratified by three-fourths of all states. Amendments can also go through a convention process. For NPR News, I'm Regan McCarthy in Tallahassee. On Wall Street, in pre-market trading, stock futures are lower. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A Newton parent wants a judge to get public school teachers back into classrooms. The resident filed a legal motion as the teacher strike cancels classes for an eighth day today. The strike is now one of the longest in the state since the 1990s. Teachers say they're making progress on a new contract. The group is pushing for funding for social workers and teachers' aides. Harvard is facing a new civil rights complaint. It contends the school failed to protect Palestinian and Muslim students since the war broke out between Israel and Hamas. WBWAR's Max Larkin reports. Attorney Christina Jump of the Muslim Legal Fund of America is representing eight students in the federal complaint. Many, she says, were followed, filmed, or had things thrown at them while they were wearing a kafiyah, a traditional Palestinian scarf. Others had meetings broken up by administrators because others felt unsafe. Jump says this complaint doesn't contradict similar allegations and a federal lawsuit by Jewish students at Harvard. The university is not addressing religious discrimination and religious harassment. I think that that actually gives more credence to the claims by our students. Harvard declined to comment, though the university has launched a task force on combating Islamophobia. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is moving forward with an effort to reorganize the city's planning agency. Wu filed an ordinance to make the Boston Planning and Development Agency part of the city administration. The BPDA controls the city's zoning, development, and planning department. It operates independently of the mayor and city council. Federal officials say they have a plan to protect the habitats of critically endangered North Atlantic right whales from offshore wind development. The Gulf of Maine is being eyed as a possible development ground, but Nicole Agrisco reports no specific areas have been finalized. A new plan from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management suggests that offshore wind projects should not be leased in places where major impacts to right whales occur. But the federal agencies say that if development does move ahead in the Gulf, it would occur in an area that's a critical habitat for right whales. The plan also calls for the use of artificial intelligence and passive acoustic monitoring to keep track of the population and its health, and the creation of noise limits during offshore wind construction. About 350 right whales are remaining. The agencies say that climate change is affecting every aspect of the whale's ability to survive. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nicola Grisco. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard. 
opening and artist talk for Jacqueline Kiyomi Gork, Thursday at 6 at the Carpenter Center, harvard.edu slash artsthursdays. The Celtics are celebrating a six-point win against New Orleans. They beat the Pelicans at the Garden 118-112. to The Seas play at home again tonight, this time against the Indiana Pacers. And in your forecast, mostly cloudy and cold today. Temperatures will fall this morning to highs today in the upper 20s. And a light breeze will make it feel even cooler. Tonight, the clouds and breeze stick around with a low near 20 degrees. Tomorrow, cloudy to start, but the sun will begin shining through as the day goes on. It'll be warmer, too, with highs reaching the upper 30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at RWJF.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. One of the diplomats trying to stop the Israel-Hamas war gave a warning. He said an attack on U.S. forces could widen the war instead of ending it. The Prime Minister of Qatar is in Washington for talks with U.S. officials trying to work out a framework of a deal to pause or end the war in Gaza and get Israeli hostages released. NPR's Eder Peralta joins us now from Tel Aviv. So what's this uh, warning about? It all stems from this attack against U.S. forces. Uh, Three American service members were killed in a drone attack in Jordan. The U.S. says the attack came from an Iranian-backed militia in Iraq. And officials tell NPR that the air defense systems at the base were thwarted. It appears that a U.S. drone was in the sky at the same time as this enemy drone. And so operators were confused. They didn't know whether this was a friendly or an enemy aircraft. So it was able to attack the base. Uh, More than 40 other U.S. troops were injured. And now what everyone is waiting for is the U.S. response. Yeah, and then there's concern that that response, whatever it happens to be, could derail these talks. Yeah, that's right. The Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Qatar, Mohammed bin Abdul Rahman Al Thani, is in Washington for talks with U.S. officials. Qatar is playing a critical role in the negotiations with Israel, the U.S., and Egypt. And speaking to the Atlantic Council, he said the situation in the Middle East is boiling. Everyone, he says, is dancing at the edge, and everyone knows that this attack against U.S. forces in Jordan will have consequences. Uh, let's listen. I hope that nothing would undermine the efforts that we are doing or jeopardize the process, yet it will definitely have an impact. One way or another, it will have an impact on the regional security, and we hope that things get contained and not to get escalated beyond control. This attack against U.S. forces is coming at a really critical time in this Israeli war against Hamas. The death toll is mounting. There are still more than 100 Israeli hostages in Gaza. They've been there since October 7th. Uh, There's been high-level meetings in Paris to reach a deal or to try to stop or pause the fighting and to release the hostages. And the worry is that these attacks in the region can complicate those talks. And what the Prime Minister of Qatar is saying is that whatever that American retaliation is, has the potential to throw the peace process between Israel and Hamas into disarray. And that's important because so much of this chaos has emerged from this conflict. Just to put that in context, the Pentagon says that there have been about 160 attacks against U.S. bases since the Gaza war broke out. About that peace process, Hader, I mean, what are the chances of something coming out of it? 
Our understanding is that right now it's with Hamas, that they are considering the deal that was hashed out by the international community. And the outside world seems much more hopeful about the prospects. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that there was, quote, real hope for a deal. But since those talks wrapped, there have been dueling statements issued by Israel and Hamas that leave an impression that there is still a lot of work to do. There's even disagreement about what a ceasefire would mean. Uh, would it be for a determined amount of time or would it be a permanent ceasefire? And meanwhile, the war continues in Gaza. More than 26,000 Palestinians have been killed, according to Gaza's health ministry. And yesterday evening, Hamas launched rockets toward here in Tel Aviv that hadn't happened in weeks. And in the West Bank city of Jenin, Israeli military raided a major hospital there and killed three militants. They say they were planning an attack. The hospital says that they were actually patients. All right, that's NPR's Eder Peralta reporting from Tel Aviv. Thank you very much. Thank you, eh? North Korea test-fired cruise missiles on Tuesday, third time that's happened in a week. Both weapons tests and talk of war have driven tensions to a level not seen in years. And in this tense environment, NPR's Anthony Kuhn visited a South Korean island that is a potential flashpoint. This is Yonpyeong Island. We're about 50 miles from the South Korean port of Incheon. We're just less than a mile away from the northern limit line, which is the de facto border separating North and South Korea. Uh, and just behind me, you can see a North Korean island manned by soldiers. A contingent of South Korean Marines is based on Yonpyeong Island to defend it. North and South Korean and Chinese fishermen all come to waters near the Northern Limit Line, or NLL, to catch blue crabs and yellow croaker fish. And since the 1990s, North Korea has sold licenses to Chinese fishermen to fish in waters claimed by both Koreas. The two Korean navies fought near the NLL in 1999 and 2002. Retired South Korean Navy Captain Yoon Sok Joon thinks that if conflict were to break out again, it could start here, between the different maritime borders claimed by the two Koreas. The first and second Yonpyong sea battles happened, he says, when the two Navy's vessels got into skirmishes in between the two lines. And in 2010, North Korea shelled Yonpyong Island, killing two soldiers and two civilians. That attack is taught as a lesson in national security at an island education center. Local guide An Chil Song says that for many residents, recent North Korean weapons tests bring back memories of 2010. Whenever there's a thumping or artillery sound, it puts residents on alert. We have a military base here and well-maintained shelters to escape to, so that's reassuring. But we still feel anxious. On the ferry between Incheon and Yonpyeong, I met island resident Che Ok San. She says she and other residents ran to the island's air raid shelters on January 5th when North Korea fired some 200 artillery shells near the island and South Korea held its own drills in response. These past few days, I've been very worried. There are wars going on in other countries, and I'm concerned Kim Jong-un might really decide to do something. North Korean state media have recently quoted leader Kim Jong-un as calling the NLL illegal. Pyongyang has never accepted the line, which the U.S. and U.N. drew at the end of the Korean War in 1953 without consulting the North. Retired South Korean Lieutenant General Chon Inbom says the North sees the NLL as encroaching on its territory. 
And since Kim Jong-un said that he will not allow this to happen, that means the next step is a military confrontation with an actual shooting scenario. Chon argues that a shooting scenario is made more likely by rhetorical bluster coming from Seoul as well. South Korean President Yoon Song-yeol has threatened to retaliate a thousandfold against the North's provocations. Making it look like a dare? I don't think that's too smart. Maybe it'll make some people here comfortable, but it's making a lot of people uncomfortable as well. Island resident Che Gyeong-il is one of them. I'm walking around this village thinking, if a shell falls right now, what shelter should I go to? I feel so anxious, it's difficult to go about my everyday life. Che says that if shells do start falling, he and other residents have bags with emergency supplies, packed and ready to go. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Yonpyeong Island, South Korea. Angry French farmers have surrounded Paris in what they're calling a siege of the French capital. Yeah, highways leading in and out of the city are blocked by hundreds of tractors. It's all part of a standoff between the farmers and the French government. Reporter Rebecca Rossman joins us now from Paris. So Rebecca, a siege. That sounds very intense. Why are farmers using the word siege? For one thing, it's a great attention-grabbing word, right? Mm -hmm. Siege. Uh, But whatever you call it, they're causing major traffic disruptions. The farmers are blocking the main highways that enter Paris one by one. I was at the A1 highway last night, which is the main road between the city and Charles de Gaulle Airport. Hundreds of farmers are camped out there. Dozens of tractors are blocking all lanes in both directions. And the farmers are settling in for what could be a long week. They have tents set up, barbecues, and even portable toilets. Um, all right, so what's got them so angry that they're using tractors as traffic barriers? Well, they've got a long list of complaints, uh, and it's a bit complicated, but let me walk you through some of the big ones. There are mounting complaints about poor working conditions, unfair competition caused by cheaper agricultural products coming in from elsewhere, in the EU even, countries like Spain and Italy and beyond. And then you have this question of over-regulation. I spoke with one farmer whose family has been in this business for over 100 years. His name is Pierre de Wilde, and here's what he had to say. He's saying things have become increasingly difficult in the last 10 years in particular, with too much regulation at both the French and EU level, which has significantly lowered the farmers' output, which has in turn lowered their profits. All right, so how's the French government responding? Well, these protests actually began in the south of France and have steadily been moving north. So the French government actually did make some concessions last week. They promised to change some of these bureaucratic regulations, give farmers some emergency funding, and guarantee a living wage. They also said they would scrap plans to get rid of a diesel subsidy for farmers, but it obviously hasn't been enough to please them entirely. For example, France's regulations for organic produce are stricter than the rest of the EU, and the farmers say that's not fair. Regulations to do with climate change are also stricter, and all this puts the French farmers at a disadvantage compared to other farmers in the EU. And the new French Prime Minister, Gabriel Attal, is supposed to address all this in Parliament later today. So what do the French people have to say about this? It sounds to me, uh, Rebecca, like they're the ones most affected from what the farmers produce to having their commutes being uh, blocked. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. But I have to say, there's actually pretty big widespread support. One poll has shown that 90% of the French population supports the farmers on this one. I spoke to Tufik Barakat, and he's a taxi driver, someone whose livelihood is directly impacted by all this, right? And here's what he had to say. 
So he's saying he doesn't have a problem with what they're doing, and he's actually ready to lose money if it means the farmers are going to get more help from the French government. If you remember this siege, it's not even 24 hours old yet, and the farmers say they're going to stay at least until Thursday when French President Emmanuel Macron is going to be in Brussels for an EU summit, and the farmers are demanding that Macron use this visit as an excuse to carry this fight to the EU level. That's reporter Rebecca Rossman in Paris. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning that the U.N.'s largest agency in Gaza says it'll soon run out of money after allegations emerged about connections between some of its staffers and Hamas. Also, a Republican-led House committee is expected to approve articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, tensions are escalating between the federal government and Texas officials at the southern U.S. border. Texas has barred federal agents from a park that's a heavily traveled corridor for migrants. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org legacy. The people who entertain us, the world in all its wonder, the ideas that spark creativity, joy and inspiration every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Mostly cloudy today. Highs will be in the upper 20s. Still overcast tonight. Temperatures will fall to the low 20s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow will have a warm-up to highs in the upper 30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. From the Kresge Foundation, established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at kresge.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The October 7th attacks on Israel displaced tens of thousands of Israeli Jews from their kibbutzim near Gaza. Since then, they've been living away from home, and rabbis have been visiting them to talk. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose spoke with those offering and receiving care. The entrance to the Shefayim Beachside Hotel, just north of Tel Aviv, has a grim reminder of the Hamas attacks. There is a huge board here with names of two dozens people who were taken hostages to Gaza. 
Rabbi Yael Vorgan points to the ceiling-high sign in the lobby. She's thankful some of the hostages have been returned. The red dots are the five hostages from Kfar Aza that are still in Gaza, and it's really unbearable that there are still people, young people, hostages in Gaza. Kfar Aza is a kibbutz where Hamas militants killed scores of residents. Survivors have been evacuated to this resort. It's one of the ten kibbutzim that Rabbi Vorgan has served for the last five years, leading Shabbat services, preparing kids for their bar and bat mitzvahs, and, more recently, attending funerals. Since October, more than 60. Funerals with multiple coffins because militants killed entire families. People who are so traumatized have a need to talk about what happened to them, although we might think that they don't want to talk about it, but people really, really need to tell their story again and again. And they want to hear what their tradition has to offer during these painful days. We ask, so what is shalem, what is whole still in our lives and didn't break, and what is broken, and we need to acknowledge both of them. And she says something beyond acknowledge. Prayer is also an opportunity to cry out, (laughs) to ask to be protected, to ask for help, saying, God, help us. See how miserable we are. Help us. Those who've been displaced have ended up all over the country, some like those from Kfar Aza at seaside hotels, others in big cities. Now we will see the little kindergartens. Tehelet Grabowski is showing off the makeshift kindergarten she helped set up in the conference rooms of the five-star Orient Hotel in downtown Jerusalem. Hi, guys! These the elderly ones, one-year-old and three-year-old. Grabowski fled from her home on the kibbutz Or Haner, near Gaza, on October 7th. That day is still very present in her mind. I have the, like, five-minute choice Understand the picture. My husband with a knife from the kitchen. I'm with a machete from the backyard. Defending themselves as they pack their four-year-old daughter and 12-year-old son into the car and sped away. Eventually, the family ended up here, sharing one hotel room. To say it's a miracle we are alive, grateful every day, but with a lot of hard questions also to God. Why us? Why now? Grabowski describes herself as more spiritual than religious, but these questions of faith have become more pressing the longer she's in exile from her home. She feels betrayed by her own government, her own long-held belief that peace was possible, and by the Gazans she'd worked alongside for years. We talk about the big rupture in believing in humanity, in the good of a person, Who is the other part we want to do so badly peace with? They don't want peace. They want to murder us all. Still, with help from rabbis, she's reformulating a way of talking about her spirituality. I believe in good and bad. I believe in the Ten Commandments. I believe that uh, I think it's the base of all the Torah. It's like, do for the other what you want the world to do for you. Among those doing for others, offering pastoral care at hotels filled with displaced people, is Rabbi Tamar Elad Applebaum. And I saw, just as I entered one of the hotels, a child hiding himself underneath a table and holding on to the leg of the table. And I remember seeing his mother going down underneath the table and sitting next to him. And in many ways, this is what rabbis do. Sit underneath the table and hand the tools that are closest to their hearts. 
tools like prayers and liturgies. She's been a rabbi for more than two decades and helps direct Jerusalem's educational Shalom Hartman Institute. One of the first things that trauma creates is the loss of language. You have no language for what your eyes witnessed, for what your heart trembled from. But when one's own language fails, Elad Applebaum says that is when scripture and tradition can lend words. At the beginning of the Torah, of the Hebrew Bible, it says that God saw that there is an abyss, and only then, sending his spirit onto it, he created light. So light is something you plant only on the abyss. During the more than 100 days Alad Applebaum has been visiting the displaced victims of the Hamas attacks, she's kept these words of scripture, as she says, close to her heart. As Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the person who does not go in the ways of the cruel, does not stop where cruelty sits, and he would be like a tree that is planted deep, deep on the rivers of water of life, and his leaves will not fall, and everything he does will become life again. The lesson, says Alad Applebaum, is this. Despite the cruelty of October 7th, the blessing is to continue living. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Jerusalem. We have so many stories on the Israel-Hamas war, and you can find more of them by going to npr.org and searching there for Middle East Crisis Explained. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. Ocean explorers believe they've found the wreckage of Amelia Earhart's plane, which disappeared over the Pacific Ocean in 1937. It's 8.29. Join us next Thursday, February 8th at City Space for a conversation with former NPR host Michelle Norris. She'll be talking about her new book, Our Hidden Conversations. Get tickets at wbwar.org slash events. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org slash summer. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. is among donors who've suspended aid to the U.N. agency helping Palestinians in Gaza amid allegations that some of its staff took part in the Hamas attack on southern Israel in October. That deadly assault sparked the war between Israel and Hamas. The foreign minister of Norway, Espen Bart Baida, says he's shocked by the allegations but cautions. What we should abstain from is anything that looks like we're giving a 
collective punishment against all the Palestinian people because the, of the misdeeds and wrongdoings of some. He was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. A House committee is expected to vote today on two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. NPR's Giles Snyder says Republican lawmakers accuse Mayorkas of refusing to enforce immigration laws amid record numbers of migrant encounters at the U.S. southern border. House Democrats are slamming the impeachment effort. Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries is calling it a sham and is accusing House Republicans of trying to distract the American people with a political stunt. Republicans on the House Homeland Security Committee want to send two articles of impeachment to the House floor, accusing Mayorkas of ignoring a crisis on the southern border and lying to Congress. House Speaker Mike Johnson says the full House will vote if they clear the committee. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The state is investigating local emergency services after the death of a Winthrop child on Friday. Town officials say a local ambulance was unavailable to respond to a 911 call for the two-year-old girl. They add no nearby mutual aid emergency services were able to respond quickly either. The Winthrop fire chief drove the girl to the hospital where she was pronounced dead. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is heading to Washington, D.C. today. As WBUR's Amy Sokolow reports, she plans to ask federal officials for more resources to handle the large number of migrants coming to Massachusetts. The state is required to shelter homeless families, but Wu noted on WBUR's Radio Boston that the city has been helping to house homeless individuals. You know, everyone thinks of local shelters as focused on mass and cass or individuals who are struggling with the opiate crisis and mental health challenges, but now a good 25 percent of the beds are for recently arrived new migrant individuals, and we're having to now accommodate and put even more resources in. Wu has called the federal immigration system broken, saying that forces cities and states to pick up the slack. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. A new report is calling on the state to overturn its voting ban for incarcerated felons. The report was published by the Massachusetts Sentencing Project. It says black people in the state are eight times more likely than white people to lose the right to vote because of incarceration. Data also show Latinx residents are five times more likely to lose that right. Nicole Porter is with the project. She says a majority of potential voters support giving voting rights to felons while in prison. Many support this because they believe all residents, regardless of criminal legal involvement, should have a say in what happens in their community and a voice in their government. Massachusetts voters approved a constitutional amendment in 2000 that strips felons of their right to vote while in prison. It's 833. WBUR supporters include the Huntington, Presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, A Man Seeking Audience, a one-man, one-audience show, 264 Huntington Ave, now through March 23rd. The Celtics are coming off a six-point victory. They defeated the Pelicans last night at the Garden, 118-112. The Seas play at home again tonight against the Indiana Pacers. High temperatures only in the upper 20s today. It'll be mostly cloudy, low 20s tonight, and skies remain overcast. Tomorrow, partly sunny with highs back in the upper 30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. 
Learn more at easycater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The dispute between Texas and the Biden administration over immigration and border control is escalating. The Texas Attorney General says federal Border Patrol agents may not access a strip of land on the northern bank of the Rio Grande River. This is a bit of land that's been used for illegal border crossings. And on orders from Governor Greg Abbott, Texas seized control of a park in that border city of Eagle Pass to try to deter migrant crossings. Julian Aguilar with the Texas Newsroom is following the story. He joins us now from El Paso. Two weeks of this border standoff. What's the state of Texas' argument for its hardline stance? Republican Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton again told the Department of Homeland Security, in short, Texas isn't budging and won't surrender control of Shelby Park. That's the area in Eagle Pass that was heavily traversed by migrants who were seeking asylum until Texas National Guard and state police took control. Paxson's response came after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled last week that U.S. Border Patrol agents can remove some of the barriers erected by state officers, which includes miles of razor wire. Agents said they have a right to access the river to perform their duties, which include apprehending migrants and processing them according to federal law. But here's Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick on Friday, basically telling the federal government, give it up and move on. So I would say to President Biden, you say you want to secure the border, you can prove it by getting out of our way here. You don't need to be here. So, okay, Texas is a state which sits on the border with Mexico, but Texas is part of the United States, so that makes its border with Mexico America's border with Mexico. So, Julian, what's the question here? So this all centers on who has the authority to control the borders and immigration. Texas's actions are part of Operation Lone Star, which Governor Greg Abbott initiated three years ago to stop what he claims are the Biden administration's, quote, open border policies. And while Border Patrol agents apprehend and process migrants, which is part of their job, Texas is arguing that migrants should be arrested on the spot and detained. And that's what state officers have been doing with control over the park. Arresting migrants on trespassing charges, that's different from what federal agents do when they detain migrants and release some of the migrants while they await immigration hearings. But how can the state continue to block access even after the Supreme Court order? I mean, is Texas openly defying the Supreme Court here? So legal experts say that Texas isn't an outright defiance of the Supreme Court order, at least not yet. So the 5-4 to four order only vacated a lower court order that forbade federal agents from cutting the wire as the case plays out in the courts. But the justices didn't explain why in their one-page order. Uh, Steve Laddick, a constitutional scholar at the University of Texas at Austin, said the high court's ruling essentially protects the federal government from sanctions if they remove the wire, but it didn't order Texas to withdraw or stop doing anything. The larger issue that the court will eventually have to tackle is who is the supreme authority on immigration, individual states or the federal government. And immigrant rights groups are voicing concern that this whole thing could escalate. I mean, how how worried are people about that? Yeah, sure. So nerves are somewhat frayed, but, you know, it's not as if state guard troops and federal agents are locked and loaded and pointing weapons at each other. In the past, there has been good cooperation between the state and federal officers. Uh, Specifically, state officers turn over migrant women and children to Border Patrol on most occasions. But a group that called itself Take Our Border Back put out on social media an open call to active and retired law enforcement and military, ranchers, truckers, and other, quote, freedom-loving Americans to rally in Arizona, California, 
and Eagle Pass, Texas this weekend to call on the federal government to, quote, secure the border. It's billed as a peaceful event, but there have been reports of messages in online chat rooms that include some alarming language that gives a nod to vigilantism and possible violence. That's Julian Aguilar with the Texas Newsroom. Thank you. Thank you. Senior Biden administration officials are in China today and tomorrow, launching a new round of discussions on cooperation in counter-narcotics. In particular, they want to fight fentanyl. China has been the main source of precursor chemicals that are used to make this opioid, and President Biden has made fighting fentanyl a policy priority. NPR's John Ruich is in Shanghai and following all of this. Hey there, John. Morning, Steve. Given the bad relations generally, what could come out of this meeting? Yeah, these talks are just a starting point. You know, uh, China has expressed some political will on the issue, though, and cooperation on this front can have some effect. We know that because China was the source of actual finished fentanyl before. And in 2018, Xi Jinping, the leader of China, promised then-President Trump that he'd stop the flow of fentanyl. Within a few months, Beijing banned all the various forms of fentanyl by listing them as controlled substances. What happened is the market shifted, though, uh, to sourcing the precursors for fentanyl from China, which are then sent to Mexico, where they're made into fentanyl and smuggled across the border. Hmm. The question now, though, is how far the Chinese government wants to go, right? I mean, the bilateral relationship is a lot more complicated than it was in 2018. And Vanda Felbaud-Brown at the Brookings Institution says counter-narcotics is just one piece of it. My expectation is not that China will move to like 100% perfect collaboration that's insulated from politics and the geostrategic relationship. But I would also be surprised if in 2024, absent some new major crisis, China went back to zero. Okay, so she's expecting, you know, 30% cooperation, 50%, 70%, (laughs) something like that. But uh, what's in it for China to cooperate at all? Well, a few things. You know, Beijing has decided that it wants stability in the relationship with the U.S., you know, even if they believe there will be tensions going forward uh, and that they're going to be a feature of the relationship, even given the mistrust in the relationship. You know, the Chinese economy is not doing well. There are also sources of instability elsewhere in the world. A Chinese official at the start of these talks said the relationship uh, gains from cooperation and loses from confrontation. You know, analysts are also saying that Beijing wants to be seen as a constructive force, particularly on this issue, that it takes illicit drugs seriously. And officials here reference China's own bitter experience with drugs, in particular the opium wars of the late 19th century. Oh, this was a time when opium was being shipped into China and they tried to stop the UK from doing that, had to fight a war and lost the war. Um, Can you put this in a larger context for us? Aren't there more efforts, broader efforts between the US and China to be talking? Yeah, there are. You know, this comes out of the the a meeting between uh, President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping in November when they met in California on the sidelines of an APEC meeting. Um, the counter-narcotics cooperation actually has been a feature of U.S.-China relations going back decades. It broke down as, as relations between the two countries worsened in recent years, but it's put back on the agenda. It's a priority for Biden as the death toll has soared. There's also other dialogues that are now ramping back up, in particular military to military is one. So it's part of this broader picture of relations getting back on track. So on fentanyl, what can China specifically do? Well, you know, China has already put companies on notice that they, uh, those that are exporting certain precursors, it's taken other small steps. It's a supply side fix that they're looking at here. China's not the only seller of precursors. Others can do it like India. 
And experts say the cartels in Mexico are probably going to evolve and adapt. Uh, one thing that may come out of this, though, is a deeper uh, this deeper cooperation is a better understanding of the networks where these drugs are made, how they're made in Mexico, and perhaps they can eventually be squeezed at that point in the supply chain. NPR's John Ruich in Shanghai. Thanks so much. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report previews an earnings report due out from Microsoft today. The company recently overtook Apple to become the world's most valuable company by market capitalization. It's also been boosted by its work with OpenAI, maker of ChatGPT. Mostly overcast today in the upper 20s, still cloudy tonight and in the low 20s, partly sunny tomorrow and in the upper 30s, it's 31 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders. Committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together. Supporting NENSA's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. Faneuil Hall Marketplace has a new landlord. The lease was acquired by the J-Safra Group. Terms of the deal have not been released. Tenants of Faneuil Hall tell the Boston Globe they hope the new landlord will keep up with repairs and bring on more local tenants. They say the change could help with downtown revitalization. The cost of rent rose in Worcester last year. A new report from construction coverage finds the median rent rose 7.6 percent. The increase in Worcester is identical to what it was across the state. A decades-old deli in Tewksbury plans to close today. Deli Kings serve Greek and American food since 1989. The owners say they're closing the restaurant so they can retire. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Maplewood Country Day Camp, Southeastern Mass, where since 1965, their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim. MaplewoodYearRound.com and Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez with an update now on one of the greatest mysteries of the past century. A deep sea exploration team believes it has captured images of Amelia Earhart's plane on the ocean floor. The company Deep Sea Vision surveyed thousands of square miles of the Pacific Ocean floor last year. Pictures from the expedition show a plane-shaped object about 100 miles from Howland Island. That's where Earhart and her co-pilot were supposed to refuel before they disappeared in 1937. Howland Island is about 1,700 nautical miles from Honolulu. Deep Sea Vision CEO and former U.S. Air Force Intelligence Officer Tony Romeo joins us now. So what makes you think those are uh, images of Mila Earhart's plane? 
Yeah, so we've got uh, well three three main reasons. First, the uh, the twin vertical stabilizers in the back of the empennage, the tail section, are very uh, distinctive of Amelia's aircraft. Um, Two, the the area that we found this was incredibly flat and smooth. So you know, any natural formation protruding up from the from the bottom would be very unusual. And then three, the size of the aircraft in the image is uh, you know very uh, very much within the parameters of what we'd expect for her aircraft. How deep is it down there? I mean, can you take something down there to take a closer look? Yeah, absolutely. You can't dive down there. It's about fifteen thousand feet. But uh, the next step is to get an ROV down there take pictures and uh, maybe take a look at what the condition of the aircraft is in. So what would you need to see then? What would you need to see, Tony, to make sure that it's 100% Amelia Earhart's plane? Sure. What we want to see is NR16020. Those are the uh, those are the numbers that were painted on the front and bottom side of the wings of our aircraft. And we expect, based on what we've seen from other World War II airplanes at similar depths in the ocean, that the paint and the plane will be uh, still in really good condition. What would it be like for you, Tony, if you actually get confirmation with your own eyes that that is her plane? Oh, absolutely. It'd be surreal. You know, we had a bottle of uh, 1937 Jameson whiskey on board <laughs> and yeah, we didn't, we decided not to crack it open because uh, nothing's official yet, but yeah. uh, we'll be bringing that back with us for the next trip. Now, the drone that you use to, to capture these images, I mean, it's really cutting edge, really expensive technology. And there are so many other mysteries uh, on the ocean floor, Tony. Why spend all this time and money on this particular one? Well, this is the biggest one, I think. Um, uh, certainly, uh, you know, the most enduring. Amelia was a terrific, she was an aviation pioneer. She was a, you know, early advocate for women's rights, terrific author. I mean, that just, you know, her story was just so incredible. And it spawned so many different theories and conspiracies over the years that, you know, it'd be nice to finally bring closure to this one. What do you think people should know about Amelia Earhart? You're a pilot. I'm sure that you read about her when you were a kid and, and maybe she's been some kind of influence on your on your career as a pilot. What should people know about her? Yeah, she's super inspirational. And I mean, the name of the documentary that we're making is called Why Not Us? Why can't five, you know, relatively unknown guys go out and solve aviation's biggest mystery? You know, really the inspiration comes from her. She was, uh, you know, she grew up in very humble beginnings and ended up a worldwide celebrity. You know, that's the message that we're trying to to put out in our in our documentaries. Why can't anyone go out and do, you know, that thing you've always wanted to do, but yeah. just haven't, uh, you're inspired, go do it. And uh, one of my favorite quotes is actually from Amelia Earhart herself. She said, you know, they asked her right before she went on her around the world trip, you know, why are you doing this? This is really dangerous, really risky. She said, because I want to. And I just love that quote <laughs> and I love that spirit. Tony, when you get confirmation, if you get confirmation, you make uh, sure one of your first calls is to us, all right? <laughs> Great, thanks for having me on. That's Tony Romeo, CEO of Deep Sea Vision. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll tell us about the sentencing for former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. He was convicted of revealing official secrets. It's the latest in a slew of legal cases against Khan that supporters say are meant to sideline him and his party just days ahead of elections there. It's 8.50. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. 
play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. House Republicans are moving forward with impeachment efforts against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Europe's statistics agency reports that the Eurozone's economy stagnated late last year as consumers dealing with high living costs reigned in spending. And the ongoing Newton teacher strike is now one of the longest in the state in decades. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Bridgewater State University. Ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list. Bridgew.edu. Upper 20s and mostly cloudy today. Overcast and low 20s tonight. Upper 30s and a mix of sun and clouds tomorrow. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Walmart has always been about stocking shelves. Now it's adding stocks for managers. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. The Name Your Price tool provides a range of coverage options. Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. The largest private sector employer in the world is Walmart. News is Walmart is giving managers a new benefit as it competes for talent in a tight labor market. The retailer will offer managers Walmart stock. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has details. Walmart says its store managers will get up to $20,000 in company stock every year. The exact amount will depend on the size of the stores they run. Managers of supercenters get the $20,000 worth of stock. Those who run smaller neighborhood market stores get $15,000, and managers of hometown stores get $10,000. Walmart says it's also simplifying and increasing managers' wages. So the average salary will go from $117,000 to $128,000 a year. And the retailer says managers who hit their annual targets can get a bonus of up to 200 percent of their base pay. The labor market is still tight, and Walmart is trying to keep its workers from going to competitors like Target. It's also raised pay for its associates and says its average wage will soon be over $18 an hour. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. Microsoft reports profits later today. In recent weeks, Microsoft overtook Apple to become the world's most valuable company when the metric is stock price times the number of stocks equals market capitalization. The trick to that is its big footprint in artificial intelligence. Given its investments in OpenAI, maker of ChatGPT, Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes reports. Artificial intelligence is now a feature in lots of Microsoft's products. Eric Boyd, who leads the AI platform team for the company, says, let's say you get forwarded a long email thread. You know, what on earth are all these people talking about back and forth? I can just get a summary of this is what's going on with it. Microsoft has also deployed AI on LinkedIn and in its cloud computing services. And all of that has played a role in helping the company become the most valuable in the world says IDC analyst Ritu Jyoti, who's also an advisor to Microsoft. She says the company's leadership is getting this technology rollout right. They had missed the opportunity when it came to cloud. They had become a little bit of a laggard in that. Jyoti says Microsoft has kept a tight focus on what it wants AI to do. It was all about bringing tangible business outcomes to the customers. 
But Microsoft's position as a leader in AI isn't guaranteed. Dan Hendricks is director of the Center for AI Safety and an advisor to artificial intelligence company XAI. Companies are spending billions to tens of billions of dollars in trying to compete in generative AI, and it's just started. Hendricks points to a recent AI hardware purchase by Meta. There is one other thing Microsoft is likely to be dealing with going forward. More government regulation of AI. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. The big Federal Reserve briefing on interest rates comes tomorrow. Right now, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down in the two to three-tenths of a percent range, with markets opening in half an hour. General Motors just raised its guidance on profits for the rest of the year. The stock is up more than 7% pre-market. Not a Pandora, not the mythical box that generates complicated problems or the streaming music app, but Pandora, the world's biggest jewelry retailer. Word is Pandora of Denmark has reached 100% recycled for all its silver and all its gold. Not mining fresh, but recycling saves energy and lots of climate-altering carbon dioxide. The company claims selling only recycled precious metal saves 58,000 metric tons of CO2. I just did the math, and that's a climate gas savings equivalent of getting 12,000 gasoline-powered passenger cars off the road. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. It's a smarter way to innovate. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Fidelity, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. So it's set. San Francisco versus Kansas City in the Super Bowl weekend after next. The ads have already started, including the not-so-vague references to, quote, the big game for advertisers who don't have licenses to say Super Bowl. Watching the playoffs gave our Kimberly Adams a sense of the tone advertisers could strike, including several commercials she saw, which had subtle nods to the state of the economy. If you watched the games this weekend, you may have seen an ad for Xfinity Home Internet with two brothers making predictions and wisecracks about their futures. Maybe we'll even get married one day. I wonder what I'll be doing. Probably still living here with mom and dad. Right now, economic conditions are improving, but advertisers have to acknowledge that many people are still struggling, says Akshay Rao, who teaches marketing at the University of Minnesota's Carlson School of Management. They're not trying to sell the product saying you don't have any money. They're trying to sell the product saying people don't have any money. The strategy is often humor. Take the talking winged buffalo in this ad for Buffalo Wild Wings. Every week I save so much, I can finally afford college. (laughs) Just kidding. No one can afford college. But this deal for wings, hachi chachi. What a steal. That ad tested well with audiences, says Peter Dayball, chief of insights and strategy at iSpot.tv. He says advertisers are trying to convey empathy and... They're just trying to do it in a way that isn't divisive or doesn't come across as pandering, but does it in a way that is real, but they're not always successful. For example, a SoFi ad about refinancing student loans with a bride at an altar burdened by a giant bag representing her debt. Life after student debt is within reach. I mean, it was funny, but I think the core audience felt it was a little disingenuous. And it's such a major 
pain point for these people that humor doesn't necessarily fly. He says when it comes to big financial pain points, advertisers have to be very careful, especially with the short window of an expensive TV ad slot to get the right point across. In Washington, I'm Kimberly Adams for Marketplace. And in case you didn't study Roman numerals in math or Latin class, what looks like Super Bowl LVIII is Super Bowl 58. I've seen some online confusion about this. Our producers are Naomi Rainey, Elizabeth Hodson, Nick Perez, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Garretson Morby. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. Mostly cloudy today. Temperatures will only be in the upper 20s. Still overcast tonight. It'll fall to the low 20s. A warm-up to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, we'll have a mix of sun and clouds. Thursday, the warm-up continues to the low 40s. It'll be mostly cloudy, and there's a slight chance of showers around late afternoon. It's 30 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. Reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.